with you guys. Um, one other thing that I've enjoyed this particular semester is uh, following Clemson basketball. Uh, I, I just really enjoyed it. I love college basketball. And I enjoyed getting to go. To, I probably went to six or seven games this year. And I sat somewhere different every single week. Um, early on, I sat in the cheapest possible seats for an early season game. We went with the girls. And then I had um, the hookup and had the food seats, like that food area, the free food area with the tables. And that was nice. Like that. That was the Miami game. That was the game where the guy sunk the putt across the court. That was fun. Then uh, I sat, um, had a, a luxury experience where I sat actually on press row uh, for the Georgia Tech game. That's a fun story. So I got to actually sit right there, right in the action on press row during that game. Uh, but my favorite seat actually wasn't any of those. My favorite seat was in the corner. Uh, I really liked sitting in the corner about midway up, and I went to a couple of games where I sat there because from the corner of a basketball game, you get to see the play develop as you're watching. Like each seat offers its own perspective, but from the corner, it's fun to kind of see what they're setting up. There's lots of different ways we could look at this big, famous passage tonight. Lots of different perspectives, lots of different seats. We could spend an entire semester on the Ten Commandments. That would be a great series, and maybe we do that at some point. Um, that would be the press row version, right? You're sitting there, really taking it in, up close and center. This is the corner seat perspective. We're kind of lifting up from it a little bit. We're kind of sweeping through it, seeing how the story develops and how the law, the famous Ten Commandments, fits in the context of this greater Moses and Exodus story. And so my hope is that as we pull back the camera a little bit, we'll get a wide shot of everything that's really happening around this, and we'll be able to apply some of these things to our lives. And as we do, my hope is that we will see how the law reveals three very important things. The law reveals the heart of God. The law reveals the heart of man. And the law reveals the hope for man's heart as well. So let's read the passage. I, I've printed a few verses of chapter 19 that I'll read, and then to chapter 20. But note, in chapter 20, I've listed the commandments. Those aren't the verses. Those are the number commandments as we refer to those throughout our time. Okay, here we go. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to, the, to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Uh, do I stop there? No, nine. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Then to chapter 20. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will hold 
will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Five, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Six, you shall not murder. Seven, you shall not commit adultery. Eight, you shall not steal. Nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord and the very law of the Lord. And it will never come to an end. Imagine that you're in a relationship with someone, dating or even married. And one of the things that you ought to do in a relationship, consider this advice, is you should get to know what the other person likes. Right? Like what makes them happy, what they enjoy, what pleases them, what gives them comfort, what gives them encouragement, what they like. Uh, what they like to do, where they like to go, what they want to see hope and what they want to see happen in their life, what kind of candy they like. These are important things that you need to get to know, right? Wouldn't it be super helpful if, say, they wrote these things down for you and made you a list and they're like, this is what I like. Guys, be honest. How helpful would that list be? (laughs) And they just say, do this. Then, how foolish would it be to have such a list, read it, maybe even memorize it, and then do the opposite of that list in every category? (laughs) Some dudes do that. The ten words of God. This is where God gives his people a list. And it happens to be the list of the things that please him. This is what he likes. He tells his people, he tells those he loves how to honor him. He tells them what he likes. How to love him and how to love the world that he's put them in. Because the law reveals the heart of God. This is such an important starting point because I don't know how you think about the law. And when I say law, we kind of mean all those things, right? The Ten Commandments, um, the Decalogue, uh, it's referred to a lot of different things. The moral law is kind of what we're referring to tonight. And I don't know how you think about the law of God, but I imagine that your default is probably not to think of it as a love letter. It's probably not the default. Uh, maybe you think the law sounds more like boundaries, to confine you and to keep you from enjoying yourself more so than freedom. But think about where we are in the Israel story. They've been delivered. They've been delivered. Like we've had 19 chapters of God's salvation story. And then here in 19 and 20, God is telling them how to flourish in their life on the other side of bondage. He's not creating more bondage through instruction. He's giving them rules for freedom and flourishing in the new community that he's given them. Such an important starting place. All the way back in Exodus 3, Moses doubted that God really could use him. He doubted that God really could save them out of Pharaoh's evil grasp. And he said to God, who am I to go to Pharaoh? And do you remember what God told Moses? We looked at this passage many weeks ago. He said, he said, You're going to do it, and I'm going to do it. And once I do it, 
I'm going to take you to this mountain, and that'll be a sign for you that I did it. And here we have Moses and the people coming to this mountain, this wilderness of Sinai, and they're on this mountain. And the text says that Moses went up the mountain, and the Lord said, and I love this, I love how he said, hey, you saw what I did in Egypt, right? Like, that's how he begins this speech. Did you see what I did? I brought you out on eagle's wings. I delivered you to myself. You saw that, right? Amazing. Now, obey my voice. Keep my commandments. Don't miss the order. This is so important. So practical. Don't miss the order. He says, I have delivered you. Now obey my voice and keep my commandments. He says, see how I have been gracious to you. Now see the law I've given to you. He says, observe my salvation for you. Now observe my instructions for you. Do you hear the order? So important. God has shown his people that they have been loved. That they have been saved and delivered and cared for. And now life on the other side of bondage will be a life of growth and satisfaction and prospering. If they will listen, they'll listen to his commands. Because the law isn't for bondage, it's for freedom. It's given for our good to show us how life works best. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity where he says the moral law is like an instruction book for the human machine to work best. I want to read you his illustration. He says there's a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. He replied that as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and try to stop it. Lewis says, I'm afraid that is the sort of idea that the word morality raises in good many people's minds, something that interferes, something that stops you from having a good time. In reality, moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or friction in the running of that machine. This is why these rules at first seem to be constantly interfering with our natural inclinations. Like when you're being taught how to use any machine, this sounds good for college students, right? Like a 3D printer or whatever and what. You're being taught how to use the machine. The instructor keeps on saying, no, don't do that. Because, of course, there are all sorts of things that look and write and seem to you the natural way of treating the machine, but they don't work. That's Lewis. And I love what he's saying. He's saying that God's rules show us how the human heart works best. And, and we don't come up with that ourselves. God has actually told us. He's given us instructions to run this machine the way it's meant to be run. You see this all throughout the commandments. God is giving instructions not to bind us, but to give us freedom to live in light of our created design. Let me give you some examples. I'm going to scatter examples of the Ten Commandments throughout uh, tonight's message. Here's an example of the first commandment. Why have no other gods before the one true God? Well, because life doesn't work that way. <coughs> They can't provide the ways that he can provide. They can't deliver like he can deliver. They will only disappoint and cause disaster and they'll disappear. A life of flourishing is lived under the kingship of the one true God. The one who is loving and the one who is good and the one who is sovereign. That's why life works best when we're serving the one true God. Or the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Is God trying to rob you of an opportunity to do a little bit better on a project by telling you to take a break on Sunday? Is God trying to make your to take away your one morning to sleep in 
Or could he be telling you that what you need actually more than just a little bit more studying or a lot more studying or a little bit more sleep or a lot more sleep is actually a lot more soul rest, a lot more spiritual retuning with God's people, redirection. He wants you to be in touch and in tune with him on this special one day and seven arrangement. Because that's how he designed it to work. He designed it to work that way and he practiced it himself. Right? We have this commandment in the creation order. God works six days. He rested on the seventh. That's how life works best. And he has our good in mind. Or the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. Is God trying to keep you from getting something you deserve? To take that thing that really should belong to you. No. He's reminding you that you already have more than you deserve. He gives you all that you need. There's no reason... To take what isn't yours, he supplies everything you need to thrive in his economy. God's words are not laws of bondage. They're instructions for life. It's like when they put fences around playgrounds that are near streets. There are two ways to look at that fence for those little kids. Like it's creating a tiny prison. It's one perspective, right? Like it's creating a prison. For these little bodies to run around in and they can't get past the fence. If they could only get past the fence. Oh, it would be so fun to run on that road. No. Anybody with any right sense would look at a fence around a playground that is beside a busy street. And they would say, that's for their good. That's not a prison. That's so that they can flourish and thrive and have so much freedom in the playground. That's God's law. Not a fence to take away your freedom, but a fence to give you freedom. A life of flourishing. What if God's law really does show God's heart for you to have actually all that you ever wanted? I want you to be encouraged. That's exactly what the Ten Commandments do. God wants you to thrive. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to flourish here. In this time in your life at Clemson University, He wants you to do well. He's not trying to interfere. He's trying to give you life to the fullest. And he's showing you how. He's showing you how the human machine works best. And he happens to know how because it's his design. He built it. He built you. And I would say where we experience chaos in our lives, it's probably because something has gone wrong with the machine. Which is the second thing the law shows us. The law shows us the heart of man as well. And particularly what's really in it. As a Christian, God gives us the law whereby we can continually evaluate our lives. And in doing so, we, we actually come to see where we're falling short on a regular basis. Uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, had a practice where he prayed through the Ten Commandments on a daily basis. And he would use them to kind of search his own heart and where he was struggling. It was a great practice. We could go through each one, ask some really difficult questions of ourselves. We could accumulate very quickly, I think, a list of all the ways that we've broken God's law. Even today, even maybe tonight since RUF began, the ways that we have actually broken God's laws. The law exposes us. You know that feeling, that awful feeling you have when you're driving down the street at night and you're just kind of cruising and you're like listening to some music or you're on your phone or you're doing whatever you're doing. And all of a sudden, ah, there's a cop right there. Like you're, you know that feeling. You're cruising and it's just, ah, he's right there sitting and he's clocking and you see him. Your heart sinks. Why does your heart sink? You're a lawbreaker. No. And your heart, you don't even know if you were speeding. 
But like something happened as the law presses in on you in the, in the car. And then if they like actually pull off the road, like how much anxiety do you have? And all of a sudden you're the best driver in the world. Like you, you sat up, you turn the phone off, you're 10 and 2. And that's the law. When, that's the law literally. Uh, metaphor. The, it's the law literally. But when the law presses in, it, it, it exposes what's wrong. It exposes if there's something going on that shouldn't be going on. You feel like you're speeding in that moment because you probably are speeding in that moment. The law exposed you, right? Or to use another illustration, do y'all have room inspections on this campus? Y'all don't do that? How do you, how do you keep yourselves clean? Okay, at, at UAH where I worked before, they had room inspections. It was such a big deal on that campus. Um, room inspection day was a huge deal around there and people would like... You know, a lot of times it would be surprise inspection. Sometimes it would be scheduled. But on room inspection day, on room inspection day, everyone had like they had their act together because there were like actual penalties and, and ways that you would be in trouble if you had like, I don't know, rats running around your room or like mold growing that you hadn't like scraped off uh, food that just anyway, that's when the law presses in. It exposes what's there. Causing us to evaluate ourselves in light of God's instructions. And through it, we see where we fall short. So back to some commandments. Think about this. The fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. So that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Let the law press in for a moment. The cars pulled in behind you. Where have you failed to honor your mother and your father? Have you? Where have you disrespected them? Where have you ignored them? Where have you hurt them? Slandered them? Where have you picked fights with them when you shouldn't have? Or dishonored their role somehow in your life, even this year, even this week, maybe even today? Let the law press in. See what it does? It exposes us. We don't really have our act together as much as we thought. Or take the ninth commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. It's inspection day. How clean is your heart? Have you spoken a false word at all against your neighbor? Have you spread some business that wasn't yours to spread? Have you gotten together with your friends and spoken negatively of of those other people who aren't really in your group? Or maybe that one person who is in your group, but they're not there in the conversation. Slander, gossip, lying, constant comparisons. The law shows us where we're not loving our neighbor well. You may look at some of the commandments and you think, well, at least I'm not breaking all ten. Like six out of ten probably today, maybe eight out of ten um, I broke. That leaves two. At least I haven't you know, committed murder or adultery. Hang on. <coughs> Jesus has something to say about that. Jesus takes the law and he pushes it even further, doesn't he? In the New Testament, Sermon on the Mount. When he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, Sixth Commandment. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable in court. In other words, Jesus now says that anger, anger, anger is murder in the heart. And we're exposed as lawbreakers yet again. Or 
when he says, right after that, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Seventh commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Any hint of lust is equivalent in the law of God to adultery. The law shows us our hearts. That we're all idolaters. That we're all adulterers. That we're all murderers and thieves. The law of God doesn't create these things in our hearts, but it exposes them. And if the first nine don't do it, let the tenth one settle you in. Even the Apostle Paul. uh, Romans 7 is a great chapter to read this week of how the law works in our heart. And as Paul himself is struggling with his own sin, he's very honest about his struggle with sin in Romans 7. He says, even if I thought I was doing pretty good, it's the tenth one that always gets me. He says, when God says you shall not covet it, expose within me that I was coveting all sorts of things. We're jealous, right? We're envious. We're covetous. If only I could have his family background, his financial security, the way his parents have been taking care of him through college. Man, if I had that. If I had her beauty. Her outgoing personality, his athletic abilities, her sociability. If I had their friend group or their intellect, their capacity to just learn without hardly ever studying or their spiritual depth. Uh, if I had their stability, if I had that relationship, I'd be set. If I had those gifts, their sense of humor, like, oh, it all exposes us. The list goes on forever because our hearts are never satisfied. We always want more and more, and that's exactly what the law shows us when we seriously consider the light that shines into the darkness of our hearts. And we see things we don't like to see, and it just feels like so much to confess when you're honest about the law. So remember the title of our series. It's Rescue Stories. And I was thinking about this earlier today. I was thinking, and how does this fit in to the rescue stories? How does the law help us understand the rescue story? Well, I think it shows us our need to be rescued from ourselves. We're not in bondage to an evil king. You know, we're not under some mean Pharaoh's rule telling us to work harder. We're in bondage to our own hearts. We're trapped. We need rescuing. But thank God he doesn't leave us in that place. Instead, we not only see God's heart through the law and man's heart through the law, but it also leads us to see our greatest hope. You may have caught Israel's initial response to God meeting with Moses in this story. Uh, It's kind of humorous. When he came back and he told them that God is going to give us the law and we're to listen to it and apply it to our lives and live long in the land that he's given us, they said with so much fervor, all that the Lord has said We will do it. Ah, Freedom. Uh, It's like that moment where they're so pumped. They're like, yes, we will do that. All of that. And even Moses goes back to God. And you just imagine the conversation. I heard a pastor talking about imagine the conversation where God's like, and so how did they take it? 
And Moses is like, actually, pretty well. They said, all that the Lord has said, we will do it. And God's like, okay. (laughs) Here's the thing. It sounds great. It feels nice. It's the goal, the intent. But it's not the reality. As we've already seen, the law exposes actually where we don't do it. And as the story progresses for Israel, as we'll see, even in next week, like next week's passage that we're going to come to, they leave this this moment where God's revealing this law over the course of several chapters, and then they go and blow it, this next section that we're going to read. They say, we will do it, and then they go make idols and bow down to them and thank them for delivering them. I mean, it's just, if it wasn't so heartbreaking, it would be hilarious. And it's heartbreaking because it's so real. How many mountaintop experiences have you had? You know, how, how many times have you come back from that camp so resolved? You were involved in, in that event with that campus ministry and you're like, this time I'm going to change. I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to say no to all these things and I'm going to change friend groups. I'm going to do it. I'm not going to hurt myself in the same ways I've hurt myself before. Or get into those relationships that way I've done it before. I'm, I'm done with it. Or you went to some conference or some RUF retreat. Or some Bible study and you say, that's it. I'm committed now. I'm doing it. All that the Lord has said, we will do. And then nothing changes. And you just feel so defeated. Can I encourage you with something? Your hope is not in your ability to keep the law. Your hope is not in your ability to keep the law. Your hope is not in your resolve to be better, to do better, to obey more, to be purer, to fight harder, to drink less, to have more accountability, to read your Bible on a more faithful, regular basis. Your hope, simply put, is not in you at all. Remember God saved Israel and then he told them how to honor him with their lives. He never told them how to save themselves. They couldn't do it. It was God who had to save them from themselves. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Not in the law, but in the God of the law. Looking at the law, this is an old metaphor. Looking at the law is kind of like looking into a mirror and seeing that there's something all over your clothes. The mirror can show you what's there, but the mirror does not clean you up. It can't fix the problem. You need new clothes. You may need a bath. Your hope for obedience is actually in the grace that you've already been given. God has given you new clothes to put on. God knew that Israel could not keep their end of the deal, that they would blow it. And so he provided a mediator in Moses. The go-between who could literally intercede on behalf of Israel's disobedience. And he does that in this next passage after they blow it. And God was gracious to them and he forgave them through sacrifices even when they blew it. Because a mediator stood in the gap between a holy God and a sinful man. You know what the New Testament refers to Jesus as in Hebrews? A better Moses. He's a better Moses. You know why? Because God knew we would blow it too. 
He knew what you would do. He knew that you would break one and also four and two and three in between and and then five through ten. And we would do it on a regular basis. He knew of our lusts and our greed and our pride and so many things. He knew it. And then he comes along and sends Jesus as the ultimate mediator to stand in the gap for sinners. Not to just plead the case of grace for their sins, but actually to take on the penalty for each of their sins, each of our sins. Jesus himself actually never broke one law. He's the only one. He didn't break any of them. The police car had no guilt to expose when they pulled out behind him. The inspection gave an all-clean report. The mirror showed perfection. Yet, yet, he, he was condemned to death. Why? Because he stood in the gap for lawbreakers like me and like you. Galatians 3 said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He freed us from the curse of the law against sin and against sinners by becoming a curse. That's the Easter story that we just celebrated over the weekend. And then in Romans 8, I mentioned Romans 7 earlier. Romans 7, after Paul struggles with his sins and he sees these things in his life, he comes to Romans 8 and he opens it up with an amazing statement. After he confesses his own sin in 7, he says, And now there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How in the world is that possible? How does he wrestle with his own sin and see how the law exposes his sin and then come and says, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ? He tells you how. In the next verse, he says, because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could never do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's salvation for lawbreakers. All that the Lord has said, we will do it. We can't. But all that the Lord has said, he has done it for us. And our condemnation was put on Jesus when he was put on the cross. Why? So that you would get new clothes. All of his righteousness is put on you. That's good news. I filled three March Madness brackets out this year. Two were the same, one was different. Uh, Three different groups I played with some of my friends, including you. In the RUF campus ministers bracket, the guys are all across the country. We all participated together. Um, I picked Clemson to win it all. And I lost it all. In my second bracket, that's with you guys, I picked Villanova. And who's like Red Bird Batman? Who, who is that? Who won that thing? I came in second. I picked Villanova. And I came in second. Who won that thing? Does anybody know? Okay. I guess I won it. Oh, it's Moses. All right. This Moses? <laughs> Another mediator. All right. So, well, maybe I won our bracket. But here's the third bracket. I also picked Villanova, same bracket. And uh, so the Clemson Prez uh, staff had a, a March Madness bracket challenge thing. And, and uh, I have an office at Clemson Prez, so they allowed me to participate in this thing. Guess who won? Guess who won a trophy? An actual trophy. I won an actual trophy. They like, it's, it's a tradition. So I have a physical trophy that says, you know, bracket challenge V 
Victor or something. I don't know. And it has names on the back. And now it has my name, Reed Jones, 2018. I feel really, feel really good about that. I don't know if you know this. I didn't contribute a whole lot to last night's game. Um, not a whole lot. I mean, they needed me. Uh, in fact, I was watching it on my laptop on the floor in my house, and I fell asleep. Um, but, you know, I was, like, I was there in spirit, and, and my basketballing is getting better. Uh, I'm growing as a player. Uh, but, but, you know, last night they, they did all right without me. Um, Brunson and Spellman. And what's that guy's name? Diavincio or whatever his name is? That dude. So they, technically, they won the tournament. But I got a trophy. I do. It's a literal trophy, y'all. You should be proud. It's in my office. They did all the work. I took home a trophy. That's the gospel through March Madness 2018. Here's what I want to end with. I want to end with a very practical question, one that... Scripture anticipates this a lot, and you may be anticipating it too. I I think you may be even wondering this. So what's the point of the law now for Christians? I I see my sin. I see it. I understand that, you know, I have a need for forgiveness. I see that. I see that Jesus did it for me. So what's the point now? Is that it? Is it just that? Well, we know that God doesn't give us the law for us to obey in order for him to love us. But we do know that God does give us instructions to obey because he loves us. Okay, remember the order again. Salvation, then obedience. Grace, then law. I have delivered you. Now obey my commandments. This changes everything, I think, concerning especially our motivation concerning the moral law of God. Our motivation to honor him in the ways that he's already told us. Here's the list. Here's what pleases me. Now go do it. And how to love him in the ways that he has already told us we can. Pastor Tim Keller says that Jesus Christ was the ultimate law fulfiller so that we law breakers can now obey out of love and gratitude with relief and a lack of fear. Only joy so that we can please and resemble and delight in the one who actually did it for us. So you and I, we fight and we battle and we truly struggle against our sin because we are free. Not in order to be free. Does that make sense? I want you to hear it loud and clear. We fight and we battle against sin because we are free, not in order to be free. We fight because we are loved, not in order to be loved. I'll end with this final illustration. This comes from Rankin Wilburn, who I I love. I've been listening to him all semester. He's got a book called Union with Christ. I want you to write that book down. I'll probably reference it this semester. Union with Christ. This illustration comes from that. He talks about the relationship for the Christian with the law of God is a lot like the winner of American Idol at the end of the season. He says, you you know, think about how those shows work. Uh, The whole season, they're battling. All these voice competition type shows, they're battling in competition. In order to win, they show up. And they work hard and they practice and they perform week in and week out in order to win the judge's approval. That's the whole game. That's the show. But the last show is so different. Because the winner already has the judge's approval. And if you think about it, if you ever watched American Idol, they always kind of end the show extremely awkwardly with the winner singing their like big song. And it's always so horrible. Like it's so bad every time that show ends. Why is that? 
Because for the first time on the show, they're singing in absolute freedom. They're not performing in order to be loved. They're performing because they've already been loved and accepted. And now they're just free to sing. That's the Christian's relationship with the law of God. Rankin writes, the champ is no longer singing to win. She is singing because she's already won. Why should you care about the law of God? Because you've already won. You've been given a trophy. There's a crown in heaven for you. Not because of your performance. That's clear. But because of his. Now you're free to love him in the ways that he's told you that you can. Let's pray.